welcome to Stories Out Boundaries, a podcast by Profile Your World. And I'm the cat, meow. And uh, we're here on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia, mate. And today our guest is Brian Coulter. Brian, I just know the locals here. And um, we're doing a two to three part series on the life of Brian. Wow, the life of Brian. And um, Brian O is a dad, father, husband, um, son. And um, we're going to talk about his life sort of growing up in Victoria and Yarra Valley and then moving up to Sunshine Coast in 95-ish and then moving on to his time when he joined Australia Zoo um, with Steve Irwin and the team and then look at his life sort of now on his new business called um, Saltwater Ecology. So um, welcome, Brian, to our podcast. Thanks, Damo. Thanks for having us. Mate, um, interesting character. I met you oh, years ago now in, the, in Kings Beach here, but um, look um, – Tell us about your background. You grew up in the Yarra Valley in Victoria, three brothers, second in line. Um, where and why did you grow up there? What happened there? So when I was, when I was quite young, um, my, my nan offered um, a block of land to, to my parents um, up in the Yarra Valley to, to come and build a house so we could help sort of look after her as, as she sort of got older. So mum and dad jumped on that opportunity. It was in the Yarra Valley, right on the, on the, uh, the Yarra River. Uh, the upper reaches there, it was beautiful and, and very idyllic sitting in the Yarra Valley. So we moved up there and just um, basically immersed ourselves in the bush. And so you were born there? Um, I was born in, in, in Burwood and I guess um, when I was about three years of age, we moved to the Yarra Valley. And the Yarra Valley, so what, what happened to the Yarra Valley? So obviously you, you were saying recently that your grandparents had some land there. Yeah, that's Mate. right. Yeah, so they, they, they offered, um, uh, my grandmother offered um, the, uh, half a block of land for my parents to, um, to move up to and she lived on the other half just to basically um, help look after her as she, as she grew older. So you, you built a house there? Yeah, yeah, so my, my dad uh, built, built a house there. He was working full time for, uh, for telecom and uh, in his spare time he, he built, built a house. It took him uh, three years, but that was the house that we all grew up in. And did he show you the wares of building, you know, how, how you use the old hammer and get going and get physical? Yeah, for sure, yeah. As, as a young man, I definitely helped him uh, punch the nails in the, yep. in the floor and, uh, yeah, <laughs> hand, hand, hand out the, uh, the timber to him. Yeah. And when you grew up there, so you went to school, Yarra Valley as well? That's right, yeah. Went, went to school there, small little, little school with, uh, with, with my brothers. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a beautiful school in, in the bush. They used to get snow on the mountains around there in the wintertime. So you were born in 73, weren't you? Yeah, 1973. Yeah. yeah. So Yarra Valley is a beautiful part of the world, isn't it? I mean, these days it's, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a destination for tourism, wineries, country, getting away from those Melburnians who want to escape the um, city life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I moved, moved up to the Yarra Valley over 40-odd um, over 40, 40 years ago, and uh, it's incredible. When, when I go back there today, very little has, has changed at all. A lot of the old buildings are still exactly the same, and the mountains are still the same, and, and very, very little development has, has taken place there. Tell us about your schooling. So you were saying recently when we had a chat to you, schooling wasn't your favourite thing, was it? Like you, you got through schooling and you yeah, were- that's that's right. Yeah, I guess uh, I, was, I wasn't. I was never. Um, into, in, I was never a, an a- academic at all, and um, and I couldn't wait to sort of uh, leave school and just uh, get out there in, into the workforce and uh, and sort of you know pave my own way. Yep, one of three brothers. So you came in in line. So was it a, year, a few years between each, each of you? Yeah, there's about about um about uh, one year in between my older brother and my younger brother, and then uh, seven years between my youngest brother and myself. Wow! So we're all, all quite close. Yeah, and where, where are the boys now? 
Uh, they're all down in Victoria. I've got two brothers that live in Melbourne and one that lives at Yarrawonga. Now, mate, you're a Saint supporter, Saint supporter, hey? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so my whole family uh, always went for uh, Fitzroy, the Lions, which then became later uh, known as the Brisbane Lions. But when I was very, very young, about three or four, my auntie gave me a Saint Kilda jersey. So I've been a Saints man ever since. Yeah. I'm a Saints supporter too, as you know. I love the Saints, and they're not doing too bad this year either. So I hope they're, um, you know, we, we push on next year and make things happen. The Saints. And did you play any footy? Did you? Did the ball I did, the mate. Yeah, no. Nah, me and my brothers, we played all sorts of sports. We played um, AFL. We played uh, tennis. We played cricket, basketball, um, and and I did enjoy sports, but I wouldn't say I, I really excelled at it. Um, my my older brother and my younger brother were quite good. They I say they were a bit bit more sort of a sporty than what I was. But when I was about thirteen years of age, my uh, my mum enrolled me in in the Venturers, which is part of the Scout Association. Is it Venturers or Adventurers? Uh, Venturers, Venturers, yeah. yeah. And um, and that sort of really became you know a huge part of my life there. Yeah. So Venturers, what is it's like a Scout group? Is it Advanced Scouts? What? what is yeah, it? that's right. Yeah. So um, so we, we, in the Scouts, you got the, the little Cubs, then you got the Boy Scouts, and then the Venturers. Venturers is like thirteen to uh, eighteen. And um, you sort of do a bit more, um, bit more adventurous type of stuff. So we'd go hiking down in um, down in Tasmania, do like a ten day hike down there. We'd um, go on big canoe canoe trips. We'd go rock climbing. We'd go and uh, camp in the snow, build igloos, uh, skiing, snowboarding, that sort of stuff. So, so that life really set you up as you are today, didn't it? It's obviously set you set you what you're doing, who you are today. That sort of it did, outdoor yeah, definitely life. Um, gonna say early on, like. You describe yourself as an ecologist, so you deal with plants, animals, um, and the environment, and how it relates to each other. Is that fair enough to say? Yeah, that's, that's your, right. That's your life. Yep. And that obviously was the start of how you um, forge your way into this, this new sort of world you live in. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the funny thing was, so um, growing up and uh, and and doing the, the ventures and, and all those amazing outdoor pursuits, um, so. One of, the, one of my favourite subjects at school, surprisingly, was um, outdoor education. And, uh, and of course, I got a, uh, an A+. And I actually won a scholarship um, in year 11. Um, and the scholarship was to do a, a challenge course with Outward Bound. And, uh, and that trip um, was over 30 days. It took place in far north Queensland. And that was probably uh, one, of the, one of the things that paved the way for me to move north to Queensland. Okay, so you did Outward Bound. Yeah, and was right. that where was that thirty days? Was that so a- that was in the, in the rainforest of far north Queensland. So we we spent um, spent you know a couple of weeks um, hacking our way through through World Heritage Rainforest, and then we <laughs> then we went canyoning down. You said hacking your way with, with machetes? Was no, it? No, actually, with secateurs. We, ah. we would do three kilometres a day, and that was going flat out. So there'd be three of us cutting with secateurs, someone behind navigating, someone behind sort of pacing out to see how far we'd come. It was really hard work and dark the whole time. And uh, what was your age then? I would have been about eighteen then. Yeah. Um, so it bounds obviously a, a, a course you're going to develop yourself. It's to to work as a team. It's obviously to to look at survival and how you work, how you in, integrate with the environment. So that was a month, was it? Thirty days. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, and we did did a whole manner of um different activities. Yeah. There was hiking. There was um there was um canyoning. There was rock climbing. There was uh, abseiling. Mm. And then at, at the end of it all, we, we did it did a ten k uh, run. Uh, 10k fun run and um, it's the first time I'd ever run 10k so well, I, was, I was pretty pretty impressed with myself. How many people were in the group? Right? There was um, there was 10 people in the group and then there was um, four groups but um, wow. we didn't really tend to run into the other groups they were just sort of out there doing some similar yeah. things yeah. Yeah. In the background here I can hear my, do- my dog 
playing with his toys, squeaking away here, guys. And any, any background noise is podcast. We've got a doggy here in the background, a pup. He's trying to play a game, so please ignore that. Um, interesting, yeah. So you did a lot of things that were outdoors and, and forged your way in terms of um, that sort of life. Tell me about when you left school. So you said, I'm done with here. I'm going to get a, get a gig. Year 11-ish? That's right, yeah. Well, I wanted to leave school at the end of year nine, and mum said, just do one more year. Then I did year 10, same thing. And then at the end of year 11, I thought, no, I've, school's, schooling's not for me. I did have a very good um, friend base at school, but um, and I, I wouldn't say I really struggled at school academically, but I, I didn't, definitely didn't excel. And, um, and I, for me, it was, I was more sort of a hands-on, and I, I needed to be outside and out amongst it. So I left school at the end of year 11, yep. moved out of home down to, uh, down to Gippsland, to uh, the Streslicky Ranges, and I, I worked on a um, on a cattle cattle property there. It was cattle, beef, and um, dairy and dairy. Yeah, yeah. So it was milking cows. It was um, fencing. It so, was, you, uh, so you packed the bags, left home, said, "See you, mum. I'm out of here. I'm going south." Yep, that's yep, right. You have a car back then. Did you have a car. Yeah, I had a car. I had a um, what sort of car do you have, Rhino? 1980 model um, XD Ford Falcon oh, station wagon in control. Yeah, it was a six cylinder, <laughs> oh. three speed, and. Uh, yeah, I, I um, it was good. I, I was able to fit my all of my worldly possessions in the back of it, <laughs> which was a swag and a surfboard. Yes, and uh, and a little bit, a bit of hiking, camping gear, climbing gear, and that, that was about it. You know, you say surfboard because you went from Yo Valley, right? So, were you surfing before you left Yo Valley, or you just started? You thought I'll get a board and I'll head south. Yeah, well, um, we, we were probably about a good two hours from from the beach, so surfing wasn't wasn't really on our radar. But when my older brother got his license, um. All of a sudden, we started, um, you know, going down and, and trying our hand at surfing myself and Ross. So I can really sort of equate um, my older brother for, you know, first sort of introducing me to the surf. But it wasn't until I moved down to Gippsland and closer to the beach that I used to sort of surf a bit more, you know, especially in, in the summertime with, the, with the, you know, the daylight savings. I finished work and go down for, for a surf and I really fell in love with it. What part of the coast was that? So it was Gippsland. So we'd, we'd go down to, um, to Enverloch. Yeah. Yeah, Tarwin Lower. Yeah, a bit of surf down there. It was a pretty cool. It was, yeah. It was always, around. always wetsuits. Even in, in the middle of uh, summer, we'd have, have, a, have a steamer on. And I didn't, I didn't uh, surf in the winter at all, but too much of a wuss, yeah. Who, who taught you how to surf? Well, I kind of I taught myself. And, um, and that's maybe one of the reasons why um, you know, I'm not the world's best surfer, that's for sure. Because yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, out of all the, all the sports I've ever, ever tried my hand um, with, surfing has definitely been the hardest, but it's also the most rewarding and, and probably the sport that I love more than anything else. Wow, yeah. So tell us about your, your, um, your life on the beef cattle dairy farm. What happened there when you studied some work as well there? What, yeah, what happened yeah. There? So um, I'd been, been there about a year and, and my boss um, um, told me that I should um, do a bit, a bit of study. So I did a um, certificate four in dairy farm management. And, um, and and completed that, so I was then the manager. Uh, but I was, because I was the only person that worked on the um, on the farm, I'd give the orders, and then I'd, I'd have to go, <laughs> go and take the orders. But yeah. but my boss, Perfect. well, he was a, he was a fantastic guy. He was um, he loved animals, you know, not just his um, his cows and his sheep and, he, and his beautiful dog. He had this border collie called Jess, um, but he loved um, nature as well. And and we had wedge-tailed eagles that lived on the farm. There was wombats. There was koalas. There was snakes. Uh, mind you, though, back then, whenever I saw a snake, I'd sort of take off in the opposite direction because they, they scared the bejesus out of me. But um, mm. yeah, he he was a great guy, and and um, yeah, and uh, it was great to sort of uh, see his passion in animals, and and me being a real nature lover, an animal lover, it was easy to sort of um, you know fit into that role. 
And what I was asked you recently, what was that farm called? Dougal's Farm? McDougal's Yeah, so, farm? so the guy's name was John McDougal. And um, and so, yeah, I guess I just uh, refer to it as McDougal's Farm. Yeah, the Dougal's. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So that really that really set yourself up in terms of your, your upbringing sort of from Yo Valley and, and your, your travels and your adventures and outward bound um, and seeing the environment and intera- interacting with the environment and then moving to your first gig. Back then, we pay, I used to get paid a little bit envelope in cash, an envelope you were paid each week and you'd spend that. What was pay like back then? Did you? Um, it was actually the pay was was quite good actually, um, especially um, seeing how I did did my sort of certificate for in dairy farm management. Pay definitely jumped up then, so I was I was on a pretty good wicket. I think my pay used to go into easy to just go directly into my my bank account, and then I'd uh, mm. take out a bit of cash each fortnight uh, to pay rent because I lived in a little farmhouse down the road. My farm by yourself by myself. Yeah, the yeah. farmhouse was about probably um, 20 minutes to the nearest town and um, there's was, there was a wombat that lived underneath the house. There was, um, I remember um, very, very early in the piece, one night I heard a, a strange bellowing noise down the driveway and uh, so I crept down the driveway with my, my torch and, and my knife and I was, I was uh, very apprehensive and it was a koala in, in the tree so I was uh, pretty excited about that. Yeah. Is that your first koala you'd seen? No, I had seen um, other koalas sort of growing up, but uh, certainly it was the first one that I'd ever had living in, in my front, um, front garden. Now, Brian, a lot of 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds, you know, at home or living home, and they're, they're out and about, nightclubs, they're, they're, they're playing sport and they're partying hard, they're chasing, I'll say, skirt for the better of manly terms here in the podcast. But, mate, did you um, get to the local pub and check out the local talent? You know, with a few boys, were you on the turps off and on with the boys or did you just, you know, get surfing and just get active? And Well, certainly uh, when I was living down, uh, down and working on the farm, during the week it was just, um, you know, you're up at uh, you know, five o'clock in the morning to go and milk the cows and then um, eight o'clock at night, you know, be, be, be in bed ready for the next morning. So basically um, during the week I'd uh, have a pretty, pretty, um, pretty cruisy sort of a schedule but then Friday afternoon I'd have the um, the car packed and I'd, I'd drive back to the Yarra Valley and ah yes yes drop in see mum and dad and say good day and then then go down and catch up with all, all my good mates that um you know that um that, that also had sort of um you know love surfing and camping and yep. and we'd quite often go out to um different you know nightclubs or we'd, we'd plan trips away down to Phillip Island and yeah uh, awesome yeah so you so you got away back to the back to the home home front with the boys and playing trips from there. That's right. That's and then, and then normally Friday, uh, normally um, Sunday night, I would drop back in to see mum and dad, have have a bit of a uh, bit of dinner with bit them, of and, a bit of tucker, and then I would um, you know, drive back to the farm, which was about two and a half hours, and it was pretty much all through the bush too, through the mountains, the beautiful mountain yeah, ash. It's nice drive, isn't it? I, oh, I do recall the drive through. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Tell me, was it a family roast? Was it a nice lamb lamb roast? What yeah, they we'd have, have a lamb roast, all sorts yeah. of uh, all sorts of uh, yeah, great stuff. Veggies, yeah. Mum, mum would make sure I got my, my dose of veggies. And, sauce, yeah. All, 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 <laughs> all the great all the great sort of stuff that you used to uh, there. Yeah. So your family's still in Victoria. They are. Yep. Yep. Do you see him very often? Did you get down there very much? Yeah, I, I um, went down there. My dad, um, he sort of had a bit of bit of a um, bit of a um, turn uh, a few months ago, for want of a better word. And so um, we sort of snuck down there, uh, myself and, and my daughter Rani, in uh, in between uh, the COVID lockdowns, and and just got to spend a week with them and and catch up up with them. Um, and they'll probably get up here too, uh, up to, to Queensland as soon as um, all these lockdowns and business sort of finishes up. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, um, yeah. So just moving on to your family because obviously 
you're married to Kate and, and your daughter, what, Rani. Yep, that's right. Um, you live in Golden Beach and something goes here now. So um, obviously as a, as a dad and stuff, you've, you've obviously have a – how old is Rani now, your daughter? She's 12, 12, She's 12 years 12. of age now. So you've got a, you know, you've set up here in life and you really enjoy your life here, aren't you? Golden Beach and Sunny Coast, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I love it, mate. Yeah, so um, um, it took me quite a few years to go back to Victoria after I moved to Queensland. I, um, I was pretty sort of sick to death of the place. But now whenever I go back down there, I, I, I love my visits. I love taking mm. Rani and, and my wife Kate to all, the, all those beautiful places where I sort of um, used to explore as a young fellow down to Wilson's Promontory, Phillip Island, and the Great Ocean Road and... Um, you know, the Grampians, or you know, Mount Rapalies, all those those beautiful places, and uh, I really I really appreciate it whenever I go down there now. Yeah, we're going to talk in an episode about your move to the Sunshine Coast in Queensland and your life in um, Australia Zoo and Riptop Park, and, and your, your life beyond that in, in another episode. But I, still, I suppose in this in this situation, we will venture into your to your life now, um, which we could do in an episode. But we'll talk about your life now. Um, and then we'll go back into to, to that venture north. You run a business called Saltwater Ecology, which started three years ago, four yep. years ago. Um, and you did that um, obviously post your experience at Australia Zoo. Yep. But um, just talk a bit about what, what it means to you to live in an environment um, today, what you do in your business, um, and a bit about how people um, can live better in the environment. Because your journey has obviously, um, your experiences have, have set yourself this way. So talk a bit about um, your business, Saltwater Ecology. Yep. And tell me a bit about um, how, do we, how, how can we live in the environment um, and, 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 and look after our environment. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, well, I guess I started, um, I started Saltwater Ecology in 2017. And, and I mentioned, we mentioned before that I moved up to the Sunshine Coast in 1995. Because I've been living here so long, I've seen a, a dramatic change to this whole sort of whole region of southeast Queensland. I mean, when I um, first moved up to Calandra, there was koalas sort of in, in around the bushland areas here, up around Sugarbag Road. Now they've all, all but sort of disappeared. So, um, now that that all comes with urbanisation and, and a huge sort of um, you know, population um, growth in in this region, and also with the population growth becomes you know, housing and, and urbanisation. And um, basically, um, what 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 we've tried to do um, now, myself and, and Kate and Young Rani, is um, is, is sort of live a life that's sort of um, going to basically. Um, you know, um, I'm after sort of. Um, Demonstrate of or, 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 or show an example of yeah show show an example yeah that that um you, know, you don't sort of need like you know a massive big sort of um you know you know fancy house and and and, and all the trimmings yeah you can sort of live live very very simply with it, with a very sort of small um you know footprint I mean mm. um we've we've basically set up our house with solar panels with you know a solar hot water system we've got um we've got screens that um uh, you know um allow you know the, the the nice sort of sea breeze in so we don't need um. Um, cooling in the in the summertime, we have uh, you know a worm farm and and, uh, and chickens. We grow our own vegetables and uh, we have our compost bin, so uh, rainwater tanks, so all these sort of things to try and sort of lessen our our um, our footprint yes, um, on yeah. on the environment. And, and how do you impact on 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 um, community? Like obviously, you live by example is probably the biggest thing, isn't it? Live by example and do things yeah, ar- that, around right. people to show what, what you can do. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, um, for, for instance, um, my daughter Rani and I, um, you know, one of our, our, our greatest pastimes is to go snorkeling down in, in the Pummerstone Passage when the yeah you know, in the summertime when the um, yeah you know, the water's nice and clear, and we always take a bag and uh, we always seem to manage to, to fill the bag full of, full of plastic and, and and bottles and stuff that's been discarded down the passage. Yeah, you know? so we we're, we're just sort of helping you know, to clean up our, our, our natural waterways and. Mm. And uh, yeah, we do sort of we sort of post about it on on uh, on Instagram um, yes. page, and uh, just try and get you know, people to uh, to you know, to join us in, in those pursuits. And uh, I just think about you know, when they've uh, you know, finished with their with their bait bag to put it in a bin rather than let it you know, blow down into the passage and yeah pollute yeah. The, our environment. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I suppose it's really you know there's because of the um the way society is set up and the way I suppose. Supplies, distributors of, of plastics and, and, and all these components that are, are delivered to, to the community. It's hard for people to change how they go about living in this space and around, you know, around plastics, for example. Exactly, yeah. And, and I mean, that's why you know, I'm one of the biggest leaders of, of examples yeah, in our family in terms of you know, whenever you leave the house, you know, do you have your disposable coffee cup? Do you, sorry, do you have your, um, you know, your, your keep cup to you know, get your takeaway coffee? And, um, do you, you, know, you have your your green bags for, for your shopping and, and uh, yeah, just try and, try and lessen their footprint that way. Yeah. I suppose it takes a fair bit, doesn't it, to change a culture or change a way. Um, and you see more and more in cafes and through some of the um, government policies, they're changing what people um, are really allowed to do in terms of using paper versus plastics and that's um, right in packaging and, and whatnot. And I think, too, it boils down to uh, yeah, our own choices, too. Um, I remember I was at the, the supermarket one night and there was a um, little old lady, God bless her, in front of me, and she had one pavlova magic. So, you know, pavlo- pavlova magic is coming an egg. Yes. And um, and the lady said to her, "Would you like a bag for that?" And she said, "Oh yes, please." And I'm like, "You cannot just carry that in your hand. You really need a bag for that one little pav. You could have put it in your pocket. You know what I mean? Like, yes. uh, I think we so reliant on plastic bags, but you need to sort of ask yourself the question: Do I really need that? And the answer, more than often than not, is no. I don't. No. And then also the training by that by that person at the, the um at the, the shopkeeper, you know, saying, "Hey, yeah, they're, do you do you want a bag? Yeah, there's your egg magic thing. See you later. Have a magic. Yeah, <laughs> enjoy that. Yep. Yeah. So, ecology. Um, you spend you spend a lot of time um working in the environment. So, one of your current projects has been for some time um managing the koala um population and and, and habitat and 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 ensuring that are protected as one species, I suppose. I know you work across a whole lot of different spectrums and we'll cross that bridge in a different episode, I suppose, as well. But currently you do a lot of work in, 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 the, in looking at the koala um, um, protection and, and looking after their habitats. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we, we spent a lot of time doing, doing surveys of areas where koalas were known to be or are known to be. And uh, we basically go and, um, and and do surveys of those areas, look for signs of koalas. We we serve, survey the um, the animals, find out what trees they're living in, and, um, and 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 check. We're also checking on on the health of the population. And then, like um, another big big part of our work is then um, you know catching the animals for health checks and uh, and and for rescue projects. You know when bushfires are impacting them. What really impressed me was when you showed me, you know your your phone or your iPad, whatever that. Um, that tracks every koala that you've ever, ever touched over years, and they're, they're, they're mapped so you can see a koala's movement and where they're located. Um, often you relocate koalas in, in special habitat areas away from new construction areas or new building sites. Yep. Um, 
But you've got how many koalas would be on your system now in terms of tracking? We've probably got about 200 koalas in the system right now. Um, I'm really lucky to do um, a lot of work um, in conjunction with Endeavour Veterinary and Ecology. And they have, uh, Dr John and, uh, and Joe, they have uh, set up a whole, whole tracking system that can uh, monitor these koalas. So, um, so when we go and with the team go and, go and capture the koalas, they can put the um, trackers on and, and, and monitor them in real time and see what they're doing and what they're up to. So you, you, you um, oversee projects and you get involved in projects that are around Queensland, wherever it may be. Yeah, that's right, yep. And you basically go out and you, um, you track, you source or you, you map, you track koalas or animals that may be yep. in danger where there's instructional building sites being, being undertaken or some, some change to a, um, an urban landscape. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, also, um, bushfire is, is a huge factor. So um, I was involved in the project last year down in the Blue Mountains. Um, they, uh, there's a, a team down there called Science for Wildlife that were tracking the koalas um, up in the um, Kanangra Boyd um, National Park. And so they, these are subalpine koalas that live above 1,200 metres. And when the bushfires were threatening those koalas, they caught them, took them down to uh, Taronga Zoo for a few months. And then after the rains had come and, and the bush had started to regenerate, we went back up there and surveyed the area to see what the population was doing. We managed to capture a couple of very healthy animals and um, did some population surveys there. Then they were able to release all those koalas um, that had been you know, waiting out the bushfire zones back into their, their natural habitat. So that was a pretty amazing project to get involved in. Catching koalas is a very physical job, isn't it? I mean, let's face it, they're up high, way That's high. Right, yep. You've got to, when you say map them or catch them, what do you use? Do you use a heat? seeking thing or do you use some sound yeah well well um what, what we used to do um back in the day is if we'd sort of line up in the bush probably about 10 meters apart four or five of us we'd walk through the bush um searching for koalas physically and uh, and they are very good at hiding up in the canopy so we'd have um binoculars and and uh, we'd probably get around about 80 85 percent of the koalas but um what we're using these days is the guys at the university have um developed a drone that can fly over the forest and it picks up heat signatures. So they're probably getting about you know, 99% of the koalas with their, uh, with their drones. They'll give us a waypoint, then we'll walk in there the next day with our GPS the next morning and, and find the koalas that way. So it's a very taxing, isn't it? It's a taxing, um, methodical, slow process, isn't it? Yep, that's right. Yeah. So, so when, when we find the koala, then, then we've got to um, um, access the best way to, uh, to get them down. So quite often that, that involves climbing up into the canopy and then using a pole with a flag to to flag the koala down the tree to um, a capture team at the bottom of the tree or physically catching them in the tree in a bag. Yeah. Where do you take koalas to? You obviously must create habitats or special areas that koalas can be, can be taken to a safe, safe places. Yeah, so if we do need to relocate um, koalas from, from a particular area, what we have to do first is go to the, the area at the chosen site we need to capture about 80% of the population there. They need health checks and they need to be monitored for at least three months before you can put any new ones in there. So, so when you talk about relocating koalas, it's a, it's a very, very big and involved process. And then once the koalas are relocated to that site, they've got to be monitored for a further six months. So who pays for this? these, these um, projects? Like, how is it, is it? Well, a few years ago, we, we, um, we did a project down in Moreton Bay. Um, it was the Moreton Bay Rail Project. So they put up rail line from Peachtree to Redcliffe. We had about 540 animals in that alignment over the, over the four-year period. And a number of those animals were relocated. So that was all sort of funded by state government. When you say animals, so like I say, quail is one, is one species, but 
we're talking about from your point of view and your business anything that's animal really yeah well, well, well basically um our team was just looking at the koalas there there, there was another um um, another um, company there called EcoShore. They were they were doing the um, the other fauna relocation. So if right. they found a possum or a snake or a um, a lizard, anything within that alignment that was being cleared, they they'd move it move it out of harm's way. But for us, we were mainly looking at the koalas, and um, we actually went in there a whole year before they even broke any ground, and we caught the koalas and we we're tracking them to find out where their home ranges were. And some of the koalas that were losing their entire home range from the rail line, the other ones that were relocated. Mm. Yeah, it's a big undertaking, isn't it? It's undertaking yeah, it's this, big, whole, this big whole, whole area. And you also get involved in um, um, ocean, work in the ocean, and, and, you know, I've seen you and um, heard about your work around the, um, the coastline around locally, um, looking at turtles and other, other um, species. Like what, what sort of work do you do in that space as well? Do you do anything that's, anything that's anything handling these yeah, for sure. Yeah, so um, because of um, I guess the the previous work that I'd done at Australia Zoo with with crocodiles and, and other marine life, um, I do have a, my name is is out there in the scientific community. So um, when people are looking at doing projects and they need sort of a specialist to um, to deal with um, certain marine life, um, my name quite often gets thrown into the mix. So the last couple of years I've been going up to, to Cape York. We've been doing a project with um, with a sawfish. Now there's five species of sawfish found worldwide. Four um, of those um, are found in northern Australia and all of the world's sawfish are critically endangered. So we've been going up to, to Cape York with the University of Queensland and um, Charles Darwin Uni and we've been capturing these sawfish and then and putting trackers on them to see where they're so being capture going. capture swordfish, you put trackers on them? Yeah, that's right. So capture them? There must be a certain time frame you had them out of the water or it's a very fast process, is it, trying to get these... Yeah, on these swordfish. Yeah, so so basically, what we do is we um, we have nets um, that we, we string um, nets out. They're a couple of hundred hundred meters long in, in the estuaries and the and the systems where, where the swordfish are living. And then we actually um, we monitoring the nests um, the nets all the time. So we actually um, have the net draped over the um, the bow of the boat, and you leave your hand on it. And as soon as anything hits that net, you can feel it feel it tug. So whether it's a meter long barramundi, a dugong, a sea turtle, anything. You'll feel that, and then we'll go and get it out straight away. Because the the biggest thing for us is we don't want to, um, you know, injure or drown any other marine life in that yeah. area, which is uh, one wow. of the main reasons why why I got uh, asked to come along. Because um, uh, the previous year they they'd um, caught a really large crocodile, had tangled itself in the net, and uh, and managed to sort of uh, tear itself free. But um, they thought we need someone to come along and, and help sort of safely safely release anything that um, that, that you know, gets caught up there. Mm. It's an intriguing world, isn't it? A world that I would never have thought about, and all the, the details required to plan and look after. Yeah, um, exactly. Well, see, a lot of the scientists, they're, 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 um, I mean, their forte, I guess, is um, the identification of these species and also um, to attach the, the trackers. Um, but um, when it comes to, I guess, releasing a 15 foot crocodile out of the net, that's sort of not what they've sort of been, been taught at the university. No. So um, that's where they sort of um, you know, get myself to come along and. Uh, and we can you know, do that quite safely. But also, um, yeah, you get a dugong that weighs two or 300 kilos, and that's rolling around the net. They can drown, and uh, they're very powerful animals, so we definitely need to, uh, to look at uh, releasing them quite safely as well. Yeah. So saltwater ecology, your business, running for four-odd years now, um, so you'll actually do it. You'll, you'll um, support any project or any university or whatnot to um, identify, look, 
assess, support, protect, relocate any type of animal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, or, um, or or if they just want to capture it for, um, you know, to put trackers on it and, and monitor or, um, yeah, that, that, that type of thing. Yeah. So going forward, um, is there something like, is there something you'd look at in our environment? Is there something that you, you would say, look, if we did this in our environment, we would make, we could improve our, how, we, how we live? Like, is there something that you would, you would, you would, you would put in place in terms of a, I don't know, a, a um, project that would say this, this, this could change the way we, 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 we do our, our life? Well, I think, um, uh, I think plastic is, is one, of the, one of the huge um, um, you know, things that, that is going to impact all, all of our lives in, in, in terms of um, you know, plastic finding its way into the ocean. And, and, and they say that most of the plastic that is finding its way into the ocean is through, through takeaway takeaway containers i mean our usual household rubbish goes to the bin goes to the tip but you know, it's the, the takeaway plastics that, that are ending up you know in our estuaries in our waterways in our oceans and that then has a knock-on effect with um you know um, marine life ingesting it seabirds ingesting it. um i've even known of, of a large saltwater crocodile to to die and it had like 27 plastic bags in, in its gut so um yeah i think you know, plastic has, has has a huge impact um uh, I think we definitely need to need to look at um, you know getting rid of, of of the plastic, you know, out of our, our takeaway um, you know environment. And why can't we do it faster? It's, it's an economic thing. It's it's obviously it's a commercial reality that people make things out of plastic. We have this whole chain set up so we don't want to break the chain and and, and commercially ruin business. Is that the issue? Or that, that's basically it too. It? And and the other day I read an article. Um, the person who actually um, invented plastic uh, did it because they, they didn't want to see trees getting chopped down any, anymore. So um, you know, in, in one way it's, it's quite quite good, but then in you know, other ways it's it's quite bad because it's it's you know down in our environment. And a lot of those sort of older plastics too um, you know, have, a, have a very very long shelf life. They're talking about you know a thousand years before it breaks down. And the plastics, that, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. So really the message is just stop using plastic. I mean, or, or there needs to be some message saying, hey, do you need to? Where is your keep cup? Exactly. What, what are you getting your bag for? Yeah. I mean, bam, are they using bamboo a lot these days in, in, in takeaway um, you know, food containers and, mm. and, and cutlery and that sort of stuff? And, um, you know, it's the polystyrenes that you know, are floating around the ocean and you know, things like the loggerhead turtles, that, you know, as, as young ones are chomping on and it fills their guts up and, and, and they're dying, you know, Compactions and that sort of stuff that we need to sort of uh, start looking at. Yeah. So I suppose there's always a, the priorities of government and agencies to make these things change, isn't it? Yeah, where, that's where, right. where people sit and these yeah, sort of things. And, for sure. Yeah. We're with Brian Coulter. Brian um, runs his business called Saltwater Ecology, and we've been talking about his, his life um, growing up in the Yarra Valley in Victoria and also moving through, um, moving back to Sunshine Coast. Uh, it's, it's a uh, two part series now, um, and we're talking. Um, Next in the next series with him, just follow us on our podcast and you'll see uh, the next series. We're talking to Brian when he moves back to Sunshine Coast and he, um, and he joins Steve Irwin at the, at the Australia Zoo or the Australian Reptile Park as it was back then. And, um, and you can um, actually, you can search and follow Brian on his uh, Instagram page, Saltwater Ecology. Um, where else can we find you? Yeah. Um, Instagram. The, the Instagram, yeah, saltwater underscore ecology. I've got a, a beautiful little koala there as, a, as, a, as an icon, and uh, we put up a lot of stories about, about the work that we do with saltwater ecology on there. Yeah, you do. I've seen those. They're great. So, guys, if you look on this podcast, um, jump on Rhino's Instagram page, saltwater ecology, and um, you can see his journey. You can say good day to him, and, um, well, you can engage him too if you have a, a need or, a, or something you need to do out there. So, um, Rhino, thanks, mate, very much for the, uh, the chat. 
we can talk for hours and hours about life in this space, but um, I think the impact you make is, is obviously incredible. And I suppose it starts with the community, doesn't it? The community. It does. Family. Cool. Yep. And showing example. Yeah. All right. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Yeah, thanks, David. That's a wrap. 